Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. And Ahmed, today, it, it oh. feels like it's been a while since we've recorded. It has, yeah. No, it's, it's great to be back. It's great to have our guest back today, David Lee. We're speaking again to David Lee, the founder of the law offices of David L. Lee, who has practiced and taught law for more than four decades, primarily focused on representing employees. He's also the past uh, National Employment Lawyers Association, or NILA, uh, president. He graduated from Northwestern University School of Law, and he was a competitive an expert chess player. We've had episodes with him before, which are some of our most listened to episodes. So it's a good gimmick to have David back. Thanks for coming back, David. Thank you. It's good to be here. So this time we thought we'd try something a little different in a, an effort to occasionally give our listeners something a little bit off the beaten path. And we thought we would do a Q&A. David, um, for anybody who's on Neela's listserv knows, David is our perhaps most active and thoughtful answerer of of bar association uh, members' questions. So we thought, why not do it all in one sitting? So thank you to those who wrote in with questions. That's mostly Jerry Bramwell and David, David Fish. Fish. But to anybody else who did, thank you. So let's jump right in. David, it, this, is a, this is kind of a general one. What's a, a piece of advice you would give to employment lawyers about to start their careers or in the, in the early part of their career? It's difficult to limit it to a piece, so I think I, I'd give more than one piece of advice. Uh, the first one is definitely join NILA and join NILA Illinois, both the national and the local. The, there's a lot of reasons for that. Both the national and the local have listservs, which are just incredible ongoing seminars practicing and the law uh, on employment, employee-side employment law. If you have a question, you can hop on both listservs and ask. If you have an answer, you can help out a fellow employee, uh, employment-side lawyer and, and their clients. The next piece of advice would be to sort of know yourself as uh, if you're new or if you're farther into your career, you should know the sorts of things that you're excited to do. You should know the sorts of things that bore you, uh, where you keep putting the file to the bottom of the pile and flirt with malpractice. You should know the types of clients that you like working with and the types of clients that aggravate you. So know yourself, know the buttons that you have that can be pushed, you know, work to your strengths, try and eliminate your weaknesses to the extent possible. And that also works with opposing attorneys also. You know, to, to if you know your own buttons, you can try and avoid that or work around that. How long did it take you to kind of learn yourself? I feel like that's kind of an evolving process over the course of a career. A lifelong process, yeah. Yeah, but it, it you know if if you've practiced a number of cases, it'll occur to you, wow, I really like drafting complaints. You know, I find that 
to be creative and I like writing and what, or it can occur to you that I, I hate writing. I like getting up on my feet and, and talking. So in a couple of, in the two top prior times I was on, I talked about that I worked with my dad and my dad was definitely, I just want to get up and talk type of guy. And he was like, you know, I hate writing. And I'd say, Dad, writing's just like talking, except you get to look it over and correct any mistakes before you send it out. You know, but, you know, different people are different. And, and so, you know, I mean, a lot of things you'll know about yourself before you start practicing law. There's things that will become apparent to you only in the course of practice. And also people change too. You know, I mean, some people, some very fine lawyers that I know started out being afraid to be at trial. You know, they didn't want to be in front of a jury. They didn't want to have to ask questions. They didn't want to think on their feet or whatever. And now they're wonderful trial lawyers and they, they enjoy it. But, but, you know, I would say know yourself and, and just really, if you have a bunch of files on your desk, just think about which are the ones I go to to work on and which are the ones I keep putting off and why. You know, what is it about those files? Is it the client that I love the client or I can't stand the client? Is it the area of law, you know, like ERISA just bores me and scares me? Is it the the place where the case is? You know, like I love drafting complaints. I hate going through documents, whatever, you know, I mean, but you have all the data you need to figure out what you like and don't like and, you know, analyze that data, know yourself. Is there a, and this is another big one. Is there anything about your career you might've handled differently or yeah, we, we can ask it that way. I'm happy with where I am now. As I said in the prior podcast, there were a number of times that I got fired I think looking back on it, I probably wish that I hadn't been fired, even though it worked out. You know, it was it was very scary at times. And there were certainly clients that I wish I hadn't taken. You know, it's it's strange. I've certainly turned down my share of clients and I've never thereafter like read in a newspaper you know, this client that I turned down got $20 million verdict or, or something like that. I mean, I, 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 I cannot think of a client I regret having turned down, but there are certainly clients I regret having taken. So I, when I started choosing my own cases, which was in the clinic, which was I taught at the Chicago Kent Legal Clinic from 84 to 91, you know, I think about my cases and I think, boy, I take a lot of junk. I got to like up my standards. And then I would think I was doing that. And then the next year, boy, I took a lot of junk. I got to up my standards, you know, and it's been like 40 years. And now every year I think, God, I take a lot of junk. And I think I have up my standards, but 
but either not enough or, or, you know, there's something about me that leads me to take cases or clients that I later regret doing. I, I do want to make clear that that's a small percentage of the cases I take. I mean, uh, most of the cases I like the clients, I, we get along well, I'm very happy with the cases, but there is always this percentage that I regret. I feel like that the adage of like the, sometimes the best case is the one you don't take, right? Like just passing and, and, and not giving yourself that headache. It can be hard because I think I know this is the Ask David Lee episode, so please forgive my editorializing, but sometimes I feel like you hear a sad story now and again, and you're like, you know, this is borderline, but I want to help this person. And maybe you won't find out till a little bit later that, you know, there's a reason they had a hard time finding counsel, or there's a reason it was such a borderline situation to begin with. Or I had an old boss who used to say, sometimes we have real, we have clients with real problems. And sometimes we find out exactly why these folks have trouble in the workplace to begin with. And you know, I don't think that always is, no matter how, how well you do your intake screening, right? Sometimes you just don't catch it right away. That's my two cents. Well, we have a sailing, I'm sorry, a saying in Nila, which Rich Gonzalez talked about in his podcast, and I talked about in, in mine, that our clients always show us why they were fired. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a two things, the, the two idea, uh, thoughts that your comments just sparked me so. One is if you, if you're taking a case because you really want to help the client, but it might not be that great of a case, limit your engagement in writing in the engagement letter. So like you're taking the case only to make a good faith effort to negotiate severance. And if that doesn't work, you're done, right? Um, or you're taking the case only for the, you know, to help with unemployment or, or something. One thing that I'm not as good at as I would like to, so people can certainly learn from my mistakes, is that even when I do limit my engagement, somehow I end up being like house counsel to the to the client, you know, like I'll, I'll limit it to good faith efforts to negotiate and, and they'll find a new job and they'll have problems on the new job and then they call or they have problems with unemployment and they call or they have problems with COBRA and they call or sometimes, you know, like their mother dies and they say, I don't know anything about that, you know, but somehow I'm getting sucked in. So, I guess one piece of advice to go back to the first question is really fight hard against getting sucked into something. You know, uh, be better than I am at setting boundaries and enforcing them. But the, 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 the other thing about taking clients is that don't take a client just because you need the money. You know, I mean, if a client comes to you and says, you know, I've got this case, it's in federal court, it was filed, and then my lawyer withdrew, and I need a lawyer to handle the case, and, you know, I'm willing to pay a $15,000 retainer, and then, you know, you can take the rest on contingency or something. 
don't take that case just because you need the $15,000 at that moment. It will come back to bite you. There might be something wrong with the case. You have to really take the case for a reason other than the money. And I want to kind of circle back to what you, your first point or advice, which was know yourself. I do think sometimes it's tough with cases because you don't know what you like. You don't know what you don't know. So you start working, you start working on cases, you have clients, and then you realize, oh, I love injunction stuff. I love the writing. And then I don't like this type of stuff. I don't like just standing up on my feet. And from there, your practice is evolving. And now you're kind of stuck in it. And I think that's sometimes the hardest part is growing your own practice, knowing yourself, and then simultaneously kind of transitioning out of the work you don't want to do as much. And then I think to your your last point, I think it's really important to be thoughtful and proactive about where a case might be headed. So your example of a person's going to pay a retainer of $15,000 and you think you can get out of it. What if you can't? And then where is it headed? And now you have a client who has the wrong expectations or you're kind of stuck into it. I think it's really important to also be thinking forward as well about where are things going to be headed. So David, let's switch gears a little bit. How do you deal with the, I'm going to clean up the language here. If for no other reason than we have to the date been pretty careful about profanity. How do you deal with the, uh, let's call it the unpleasant defendant who doesn't want to cooperate in discovery or refuses to engage in settlement discussions? I bet this was a Jerry question. I don't remember if it was Jerry or David. If they don't want to cooperate in discovery, send them a really good set of requests for admissions because if they don't cooperate with requests for admissions, they're admitted. And Try and do things, other things, that you minimize the amount of cooperation you need. So I would say, in addition to requests for admissions, like in if you send interrogatories, just ask really high-value questions. You know, if, if you said send a set of five interrogatories, and they're all obviously really high value, and they don't answer any of them, then, you know, they're, they're just setting themselves up for, for a, a motion to compel. You can also use requests for admissions to kind of catch them in their own bullshit responses to discovery. So, for example, if if you if if you send an interrogatory that's something like state all complaints of sexual harassment that were brought against this manager, I mean that's not a very good one because I'm doing it off the top of my head, but and the answer is something like we you know objection complaint is vague sexual harassment is vague you know we don't know what you mean by any of this then immediately send off a request for admission. I mean, you can get that answer and within 10 minutes, send off a request for admissions that is like, defendant does not know what is meant by, quote, sexual harassment, end quote. Defendant does not know what is meant by, quote, a complaint of sexual harassment, end quote. You know, and just take parts of the interrogatory they said they didn't understand and just send it back to them as a request for admission that they don't they don't know what that means, right? And and 
I think that's a really good way of jujitsuing their own, you know, baloney objections back against them. And, and, you know, what are they going to say? If they don't answer, they, they admit it. If they deny it, then you've got your motion to compel, right? They know what this means. They admitted they know what it means. Uh, I mean, I suppose they could restate the objection, right? Objection, we don't know. But but even so, you know, I think that's, that sets up so much more. You know, like, do they do training? How can they not know? Do they read any newspapers, you know, and all that? In terms of not engaging in settlement negotiations, I think that's harder. You can always ask for a settlement conference or a mediation or something. But if they if they if they seriously do not want to negotiate, I think all you can do is make them look bad for not wanting to negotiate and press forward with your case. I don't think there's any if somebody's determined not to negotiate. I don't think there's any, I don't know of any really good move to get them to negotiate. Again, with significantly less experience, the only way to really remedy the second one is just to press your case. And when they're yeah. ready, to, when they're ready to talk, if ever they will. And if not, you're Catherine and Simmons Gill and you're Brian Wood at the seventh circuit for the third time on the Lydia Vega case. So, you know, like, but if they don't want to talk, they don't want to talk. Right. One summer, about 15 years ago, I had these two cases. Well, I had a bunch of cases, but two of them heated up. And in both of them, my opponent was just a real jerk. And it was hard for me to decide who was the bigger jerk out of these two until one of them just really, really started going beyond <laughs> And so I was taking a walk with a friend, and I said, you know, I've got these two cases, and God, these, the, 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 the attorney in each case is like the biggest asshole I've ever been up against in the practice of law, and I didn't know which one was bigger, but then one of them just put on this burst of assholery and just, just won the trophy, you know? And my friend said, I wonder what that trophy looks like. Well, that actually, I think, leads to one of our other questions, which is related in a lot of ways to this one, which is how do you deal with that difficult opposing counsel who has that big trophy? One thing I think is, again, to know yourself, right? What buttons do you have that you know can be pushed and trying not to put yourself in a situation where there's those buttons can be pushed. And on the other hand, what strengths do you have? So for example, if you are very good at writing, do all your communications by email. You know, you can you can craft them, you can think about them, you can make sure that nothing untoward comes out of, you know, goes over the uh, by email. On the other hand, if you think you're wonderful at reading body language and have a poker face and all that, you know, try to meet for coffee and negotiate that way or deal with the person that way. If if you don't have patience for a certain thing, 
say, like, in response to your document request, they say, here's the keys to our warehouse, you know, which you might consider if you have the means to uh, actually hiring somebody. You know, there's NILA lawyers are always, young NILA lawyers are always posting, I'm available for contract work. So, you know, put back, is there anybody on the listserv who's interested in very grinding, detailed document review in return for a modest hourly rate or something like that. So I did that once or more than once, but this one time in particular, there were like, I don't know, some number in the teens of banker boxes of documents that were in the other lawyer's conference room. And the NILA lawyer I hired apparently loved going through boxes of documents and, and, you know, every couple of hours I'd get text message with a photograph of a document saying, look at this, look at this. So, So, yeah, you know, know yourself, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know what buttons you have that can be pushed, know what buttons you have that, that, that can't be pushed. Try and figure out the same for your opponent. And if you're able, you know, get some help. So uh, I, I guess on a similar topic, do you, do you ever view litigation as any kind of a game or, or anything like that, like chess, poker, or any other sort of thinking person's game? Well, as you said at the top of this episode, and as I've said in the other podcasts I did with you guys, uh, you know, I, I have been a tournament chess player for most of my life. I played in my first U.S. Chess Federation rated chess tournament in the summer of 1969. So I'm always comparing everything to chess. And, and I think there, there, are, there are a lot of important similarities. There are, of course, a lot of important differences, too. But just, just the idea of thinking ahead, the idea of trying to figure out what your best move is and what your opponent's best move is in response, and then what your best move would be in response to your opponent's response. Trying to do things that strengthen your position, you know, give your opponent a chance to make a mistake. There, there, there are, when I was president of NILA, the president gives a talk at each annual convention and it can be pretty much on anything you want. And so I, I gave several during my tenure. But one year I did applying ideas from the game of chess to the practice of employment. And so, like, one of the things was keep your eye on the whole board, you know. And there's, there's things that lawyers will do because... They need to in the moment, but it actually hurts them in the long run, or it could hurt them if you remember it, you know. So, it's, you know, it'll happen from time to time that a lawyer might bring, say, a motion to extend the discovery cutoff. And the reason the lawyer might give is something like, you know, this guy is our crucial witness, and we 
can't really complete discovery or litigate the case without this crucial witness. And he's in his busy season and won't be available for three months or something like that. Okay. So fine. You know, I, unless it was some incredibly weird situation, I'd have no problem saying fine, you know, but I would try to remember that they portrayed to the court in a motion that this guy was their crucial witness, right? And then if they bring a motion for summary judgment and they don't have any affidavit from this guy or or something like that, I, I throw that back in, in their face. And so that's the, the idea of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I analogize it to the chess principle of, you know, keep your eyes on the whole board. Remember everything. It's not just this one little area how much chess were you able to play especially at a competitive level while you were practicing when i was in college pretty much played in a rated tournament every weekend or every other weekend i have two adult sons they're both in their 30s now and uh, but when you know not that long ago they were in college and sometimes they'd say Oh, Dad, I'm so busy in school. And I'd say, hey, I've been in college. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can't can't get away with it. But, um, you know, the older you get, it's not just practice, but, you know, you might have family, you might have kids, you you might have elderly parents you have to take care of, you know, they're just... There, there's a lot more of life that gets yeah. in the way than there was in college. So, so you know, not not nearly, not nearly as much. Well, I, I love playing poker, and so the reason I asked the question is, you know, most attorneys are fairly competitive. They want to be good at what they do, and the main struggle I sometimes find. And I was hoping you could give me a solution to this problem is if you want to stay good at another strategy game, which I do think helps a lot in the practice of law, you've got to study it. You got to keep playing it. You have to think through strategy stuff. And it is hard to find time when there's other life things going on too, to kind of remain at that same level. Yeah. So, you know, chess has a fair amount of online stuff now. So, you know, I can like, take my iPhone into the bathroom, <laughs> play a 10 minute game or something. And and studying can be kind of a catch as catch can thing, you know. I mean, if you've got a chess book or, or an online chess thing, you know, you can do 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, whatever. But but you know, to 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 take a whole weekend for a tournament is more difficult well this has been great so far i think we're gonna take a break and do this as part one and then come back to finish up our our listener questions for our ask david section or to ask david lee segment before we head out for today is there anything you'd like to plug 
Well, la- last time I know I plugged Star Wars, uh, I'm sorry, Star Trek, and now there's both new Star Trek and Star Wars shows, and they're, I think, really Star Trek Strange New World is amazing. It's really amazing. Uh, even if you're not a science fiction fan or a Star Trek fan or a Star Wars fan, you know, give them a shot because they, they are really wonderful. Oh, and the Orville, too. Uh, the, the, the new season started last week, uh, and that was that was also amazing. That's awesome. I've heard the graphics are really good. I haven't watched yet, but I've heard the special effects and the production value is very high. In in all of them, yeah. So I mean, what they're doing now is, you know, they, they used to have a green screen that the actors would act in front of, and then the special effects department would put the special effects up in post-production, would put the special effects up. Now they have like these virtual reality monitors, huge monitors, you know, like Major League Baseball scoreboard size monitors, uh, which have, as the actors are acting, have the 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 thing that the audience will see. So I I've heard on interviews with the actors that you know it's it's much better for them, and they think they give a better performance because they're not acting to a black green screen. They're acting to this gorgeous visual, and as an audience member, it's really incredible. Well, that's awesome. Please check those out. I'll plug masks and vaccines. I have COVID right now. It's really miserable. So please continue to get vaccinated and wear a mask for everybody. Yeah. And I'm going to cheat a little bit. Normally we would have David do our shout out of the week. I'm going to shout out Max and his family, his wife and his daughter. Hopefully everyone has a great recovery and just Max for doing this today while I know he's not feeling well. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.